My name is Howard, and I am an alcoholic. Um, I say alcoholic out of respect to my environment and the program of recovery I found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I should also say addict out of respect to the true nature of my disease. Because it doesn't matter whether I drank it, swallowed it, snorted it, smoked it, shot it, or shoved it. My motto was, wet or dry, just get me high. And I say that so that if I mention a chemical by name or a method of ingestion here today, that you not be put off by it. Because whatever poison of preference you had, we all wound up in the same place. That point where, as Bill says in this book, quicksand seemed to surround him on all sides. And in that quicksand of desperation, I found the outstretched hands of those who had come before me in the God-given program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I want to first thank, uh, he's not here, thank Charlie for inviting me, um, thank my friends who showed up today in support, um, love you guys to death, thank you so much. Um, I was in the car on the way here, I was thinking back to the very first meeting I ever went to. I remember it was being chaired by this gorgeous brunette. And she was wearing sandals, a mini skirt, and a halter tank top. And she was sharing about the joy she gets from giving it away for free. <laughs> wow, you guys caught on. That's really good. I, I, I remember sitting there as, as a sexually deprived newcomer thinking, so I don't have to pay for the movie or buy breakfast? <laughs> I'm in. Sign me up. This is my kind of club. Let me start out with a little bit of background. Um, I should tell you first, foremost, right up front, that I suffer from a handicap. I'm Jewish. In point of fact, as a Jewish male, I'm probably the most intimidated person on the face of the earth. I wake up every morning wondering what it is I've done wrong already and spend the rest of the day apologizing for things I never did. I was raised in a semi-Orthodox Jewish home in New York, which meant we followed traditions, observed customs, holidays. Uh, we only ate kosher food. Uh, in case you're not familiar with that particular type of dietary fascism, let me just tell you a little bit about kosher food. There are certain foods, meat and dairy in particular, that could never be combined. They had to be served separately, eaten separately, stored separately. They were never allowed to touch. There were other foods, like pork products, that you could never under any circumstances eat. So as a kid, I thought if I ever ate a bacon cheeseburger, I could get struck by lightning. That's a perfect storm of dietary sin. And since it didn't make any sense, at a very early age, I started to develop these feelings of conflict and confusion regarding religion and God. Because at that time, I thought they were inseparable. I thought they were one and the same. So being raised in that environment uh, meant I had to go to Hebrew school every day after regular school for religious training. And I hated it. And I resented, deeply resented my parents for making me go there. Because, you see, Hebrew school was all about cramming as much dogma as possible into my little mush brain. 
telling me what to believe and how to believe it and how to stand and what to say and what to wear and what to eat and when to do this and when to do that. And it's just telling me all these quaint little fables and tales and just expecting me to blindly accept their conclusions because they're in charge and that's the way they say it is. And it never sat well with me. So I started to develop these feelings of resentment and conflict regarding authority figures because they're telling me stuff that just doesn't make sense. And it wasn't limited to Hebrew school. I had the same problems in regular school. I went through the New York City school system in the late 50s, early 60s. This was a time of Cold War where we were told that at any minute, Russia, the Soviet Union, could drop a nuclear bomb on us. And so in school, we had what were called shelter drills. Probably some of you old enough here to remember shelter drill, but if you're not, in school, what we, we were told that in a shelter drill, in case of a nuclear attack, we would hide under our wooden desks. <laughs> now, let me just rephrase that. We were directed by the authority figures of our day that in case of a nuclear attack, that we could survive an atomic fireball, a nuclear meltdown, by seeking refuge under kindling. I remember huddling under that desk thinking, I'm about as safe as a rump roast in an oven down here. Who the hell do they think they're kidding? So I had a lot of problems with authority figures. But back to Hebrew school. I said I had to go to Hebrew school every day, so that meant from 3.30 to 5.30, between the ages of 9 and 14, every day, while other kids are out playing, interacting, developing some social skills, I had to be in Hebrew school. So I never learned how to do any of that. So I grew up feeling very apart from, very removed from my contemporaries. Um, I should also tell you that uh, uh, I had an older cousin uh, who I looked up to as a big brother who between the ages of when I was uh, 10 and 13 sexually molested me. So now I'm also carrying around feelings of guilt and shame as a result of that. Um, whatever feelings I had of being different were, were magnified tenfold when I was 14 years old and my mom died after a lengthy bout with cancer. So now I can't do what other kids do. I can't go where they go. I can't eat what they eat. And now I don't even have a mom. So my feelings of, of alienation and, and not fitting in were just magnified out of control. So I went deeper and deeper into my own little world of my room with my books and my music and my movies and my comics. Since I never really learned how to function out here, I went deeper and deeper in here. Now I tell you all of those things those feelings of conflict and confusion and resentment and anger and guilt and shame and inadequacy and alienation. So you have an idea of what was going on up here when at the age of 16 I had my first experience with mind-mood-altering substances. This was 1968, was the summer of love, the age of Aquarius. <laughs> it was a time of... Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, man. 
which incidentally eventually deteriorated into AIDS, crack, and Britney Spears. <laughs> but that's a topic for another meeting. I uh, had this uh, uh, cousin, another cousin. Uh, I went over to his house, and he gave me a tab of four-way windowpane acid. It looked like a piece of cellophane about the size of your pinky nail and was meant to be quartered, cut in four pieces to provide four eight-hour acid trips. This was pure LSD, no cut. And he gave me instructions to A, never do it when I was alone, and B, never under any circumstances was I to take more than a quarter of a tab. So I left his place and I went home, and that evening in the quiet solitude of my room, in my father's home, I took the quarter tab, and nothing happened. I mean, nothing happened. And I waited, and I waited. Christ, I must have waited a good five, ten minutes. <laughs> nothing happened. So I took the other three quarters of a tab. Now, I got to tell you, man, it was spectacular. It, it was a psycho-hallucinogenic quadruple feature, man. I discovered parts of my brain I never knew existed, encountered levels of understanding in books and music that I never noticed before. It, as Aldous Huxley, the author, said, it opened the doors of perception for me, and I would never see the world the same way again. And, but what it did for me at that time, more than anything else, is it proved once and for all that authority figures did not know what they were talking about. Because I was told my whole life all forms of alcohol and drugs are bad for you. I was told if I ever took LSD, I would, it would fry my brain and I'd wind up with permanent, irreversible brain damage. And to the best of my knowledge, unless everybody's been very polite to me for the last 50 years, that didn't happen. So I set out from that moment on to discover on my own, by experimentation, everything I could about all forms of drugs and alcohol. I had turned on, tuned in, and dropped out. I didn't cut my hair again for another eight, nine years. Started taking any hallucinogen I can get my hands on, uh, smoking anything I could roll or put in the pipe, and started drinking. First it was imported beer and fine wine. Fine wine like Thunderbird. <laughs> MD 2020, a little bit of mad dog. I'll take paint off a car. <laughs> and I started hanging out at the Fillmore East Concert Hall in Manhattan, where we had live shows every Friday and Saturday night. And I was there every weekend. I saw everybody from the Allman Brothers to ZZ Top. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I was part of something. I felt like I belonged to something. I was part of the counterculture part of the drug culture. In my mind, I was a hippie. And life was one big party. But that didn't last very long, maybe about a year. And I found my way to depressants in pill form like sedatives, hypnotics, tranquilizers, barbiturates, in narcotic form like heroin, methadone, Demerol, codeine, morphine, and hard liquor. I remember the first experience I had with these chemicals. 
I took a handful of tuinols, which was a popular barbiturate at the time, a down. And I washed it down with half a bottle of vodka, which I was drinking for the first time. And by the time that those chemicals got into my blood and into my brain, I immediately became everything I ever wanted to be and wasn't. I could be outgoing. I could tell a joke. I, I was the life of the party. I was everybody's friend. I could talk to and, and perform with women, none of which I was ever able to do before. It freed me of the burden of self. I had finally found the key. I found what, what I was missing. And from that point on, for the next 10 years, I used as much of those things as I can get my hands on, on a daily basis, just to survive, I, just to function. Because those chemicals allowed me to function in normal, everyday set, settings like I always wanted to and couldn't. They made me, the second they got in my system, I instantly became a combination of Johnny Carson and Cary Grant, all rolled into one. For you younger people, that would probably be Jimmy Fallon and Ryan Gosling all rolled into one. But my using now, my drinking has now shifted. It has progressed. I'm not using for fun. I'm now using to function. I'm not doing it because I like the way it made me feel. I'm doing it because it made me feel the way I liked. During that 10-year period, I, I blew a college career. I went to college for five years, completed maybe 12 credits. Um, had several really good career opportunities presented to me. Blew it. Lost every job I ever had, all because of my using. Uh, wrecked several of my dad's cars. Moved in and out of his house several times. And I started showing up in emergency rooms all around the city because of seizures I was starting to have on a regular basis because of the combination of drugs and alcohol that I was consuming on a daily basis. And every time I got jammed up, my dad would take me for professional help. And I went along willingly. Because you see, I love my dad. There's nothing I wouldn't do for him. And if going to talk to these people was going to somehow help him with the problem that he was having, I'm going to go. But these people weren't going to help me one bit unless I was willing to take ownership of the problem. And I was by no means ready to do that. Plus... Every one of these guys approached me the same way, which was, Howard, let's try and figure out why you use to excess. And that just messed me up. Because if they were so concerned with my using to excess, there must be a way for me to use without going to excess. And for that next 10-year period, I tried every possible means of controlling and regulating my drinking and drugging with no success whatsoever. Any regulators and controllers here? <laughs> there you go. Well, so you know. Uh, it just failed, constantly failed. At the end of that 10-year uh, period, I was unemployable, broke, alone. The only person who would even take a call from me was my dad. And I was living in a one-room apartment below street level in Manhattan. It was the kind of place if I, if I looked out my window, all I could see were feet going by. It was a paranoid delight because all you just see were these feet. 
It was also the kind of place where if I wanted to commit suicide by jumping out the window, I'd first have to leap up to even hit the pavement. What I'm saying is nothing in my life was working out the way it should at that time. And that is the time that I found my way to Jack Daniels and intravenous cocaine. First time I shot cocaine, I overdosed. I went out. The girl I was with was smart enough to drag me and throw me into an ice-cold shower. And when the cold water brought me back to some degree of awareness, she started pouring Jack Daniels down my throat to stop the violent shaking. And when the shaking stopped, she helped me fix on some heroin. And when I mellowed out, I realized this was the greatest thing that's happened to me in years. I beat death. I got to the edge, looked over and said, mm, see you later. I, I just, this was amazing to me. So from that point on, every time I could, I intentionally overdosed on cocaine. I got into a routine, a ritual, where I'd lock myself in the bathroom. And bear in mind, in this one-room apartment, there's nobody, nothing. There's a bed laying on the mattress on the floor, my stereo with some records, maybe a stale milk in the refrigerator. There's nothing in this place but me, and I'm still locking myself in the bathroom. I'd shoot this cocaine, fall over into a tub that I'd pre-filled with ice-cold water. And when that water would snap me to awareness, I'd reach out for the bottle of Jack Daniels I had sitting there, and I hit on that thing till the shaking stopped. And when it stopped, I reached out for the syringe of heroin I prepared ahead of time, shoot that. And when I mellowed out, I got up, dried off, refilled the tub, and did it again. My last run, I was in that bathroom four days, three nights, never came out. Just kept doing that again and again and again. Now my using has progressed one more time. I'm not doing it for fun, hell no. I'm not doing it to function. I'm using for what Bill in this book called the sickest reason of all, which was the seeking of oblivion. I'm just looking to get as deep inside and as far away as possible. At the end of that time period, I weighed under 100 pounds. My skin was gray and translucent. My arms looked like a bad road in the Bronx. And I suddenly had a moment of clarity where I realized I was no longer afraid of dying. I was terrified of continuing to live the way I was living. So for the first time in my life, I asked my dad for help. And he took me to a psychiatrist, a new doctor I'd never seen before, who was a specialist in drugs and alcohol. And I started to tell this guy my troubles with using to excess. And he just cut me off at the knees. He said, Howard, you are an alcoholic and an addict. One of anything is excessive for you. So what you've got to do is get into the hospital to get off of the crap that you're on and then get into treatment to find out how to live without any of that. And so in March of 1983, that doctor had me admitted to Hallbrook Hospital in Westport, which is now St. V's. And Hallbrook brought me to you, to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and nothing in my life has been the same since. Now, I got to tell you, I am not one of those people who came into their first meeting, 
immediately heard their story and felt like they belonged. With me, it was the opposite. The more I heard, the more I felt I didn't belong. I'll give you some examples. One of the first meetings I went to was a guy telling a story about holding up a liquor store with a gun, with a gun. He held up a liquor store to support his habit, got caught, thrown in jail, did a bid. And I just could not relate to that on any level. First, remember what I said up front. (laughs) I'm Jewish. Jews don't carry guns. We pay our Italian friends to do that for us. I also... I've never been in jail. I, I wouldn't know how to survive in jail. I am by conviction a devout coward. I'd never make it in jail. Plus, I don't speak any of the lingo. You know, to me, busting a cap is something I do in a dentist's office, not in a prison yard. At another meeting I went to, I heard a guy, a couple of guys actually, talking about being in the army. I am a short, overweight, asthmatic, nearsighted Jew from New York who's never been in any branch of the armed services. To me, a bayonet was a cute-looking girl from New Jersey. What the hell did I know about armaments? But I also heard at another meeting, when you compare, you're looking for a way out. When you identify, you're looking for a way in. And I so desperately wanted in that I set out to do just that. And what I realized was the ideas, emotions, attitudes that lie behind every one of your actions were the same as mine. They just motivated me to have different life experiences. And when I realized that, I knew I was in the right place, that I would find my answer here. So I started to listen and do what I was told. They told me to, after 30 days in Holbrook, go to Gunster for 90, and I did that. They said, get to meetings early, set up chairs, put out ashtrays, which we had back then, smoking in the rooms, Uh, take commitments, make coffee. I did all of that. They said, sit up front, get your hand up, and let people know what's going on with you and who you are. I did that. They told me to get a sponsor and get honest with them. I tried. Uh, I'll tell you, the first time I tried to do that, uh, I sat down with my first sponsor, bless his heart, a man by the name of Eddie Curran, and I told him of a plan that I had. He called it a reservation. But that plan was that once I got out of Gunster, when I was on my own, had my own apartment, had a job, I could at the end of a busy, trying day, plop down in my easy chair, turn on The Tonight Show, and fire up a joint, maybe have a beer, maybe have a little bit of wine, and nobody could tell me my life was going to spin out of control. I'm not going out on a run. I'm getting a little baked and buzzed and going to bed. That's all. And Eddie just kind of leaned over and patted me on the shoulder and he said, Howard, my dear boy, smoking that one joint or having that one beer or one glass of wine for you is like jerking off with two fingers. (laughs) Sooner or later, you're going to grab it and get serious.
Now, I'm sorry if I offended anybody with that. I have tried to clean it up over the years. It, it, it doesn't sanitize well. I, I know there are a lot of delicate flowers in AA, so I don't mean I'll try not to do anything like that again. And I, so I stayed. I, I stayed in Connecticut. Um, I became very active in fellowship activities. I was going to five to seven meetings a week. Um, got a job, met a woman in the rooms, got married, we had a child. Um, and early on, I heard someone say, don't drink and go to meetings, and that's all you have to do. And that's all I did. And I stayed clean and sober for 10 years on fellowship alone. But somewhere in my seventh year, my wife's health began to deteriorate. <coughs> It went downhill over a period of the next 25 years, and she passed away a few years ago. But it all began then. And my focus immediately shifted from fellowship and friends and meetings to my family. I had a sick wife, a young child, a full-time job. I had no time for going to meetings. I just, it was out of the question. And I disappeared I, I was going to, like I said, five to seven meetings for seven years, and then I disappeared like a fart in the wind. I was gone, gone. <laughs> Somehow I stayed sober another few years on dumb luck. But it should come as no surprise to anyone that shortly after my 10th anniversary, I helped myself to some of my wife's pain meds, and I was off to the races again. I eventually got honest, went into treatment, and in August of 1993, I returned to the rooms, bound and determined to do things differently. I was never going to stop going to meetings. I was going to get a sponsor and use them this time, and I was going to start working the steps. But early on, I heard someone say, if you get a firm foundation in the first three steps, you'll never have to drink again. And I liked that idea. It didn't seem like there was any heavy lifting or writing required in the first three steps. So I signed on for that decaffeinated program. And I stayed clean another 10 years doing just those things. But in my 10th year, I got really sick. And the doctor said, we're going to have to have to put you on pain meds for a year. But don't worry. When the time comes, we'll help you wean off of them. <laughs> I was so sick and in so much pain, I just let him do it. And I and incidentally did not tell anybody. My family, nobody knew I was on pain meds. And at the end of the year, when they started to wean, I started doctor shopping, stealing my wife's pain meds, and one year turned into two and a half years. And when I lost what I thought at the time was the best job I ever had because of my relapse, I went into treatment, and I, in, in January of 2006, I returned to the rooms, but it was different. I had hit a wall of desperation and hopelessness like I've never experienced before. I was a walking time bomb where I felt it's only a matter of time, maybe days, weeks, months. I'm going out, and I'm not coming back. And I ain't fooling around with stupid pain meds this, this time. I'm going to get serious. I'm going to wind up in my basement with a bottle of Jack Daniels and a bag of dope, and I'm taking myself out. And there was nothing that any one of you could say 
that was going to change that. Because you see, in my mind, I tried everything. What could you tell me? Go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps. In my mind, I did all of those things and failed. So what else could you possibly offer me? And I knew enough to start sharing that. At meetings, on a regular basis, I would share those feelings of despair. And I can't tell you how often, after doing that, after the meeting, people would walk right by me as if I hadn't just pleaded for help. Or worse, they'd pat me on the shoulder and say, keep coming, man, it gets better. <laughs> and I thought, I'm, ri- I'm right. You're out of ideas for me. If all you've got is a pat on the back and a word of enthusiasm, I'm in trouble because there's nothing else that's going to help me. But somebody did get through. It was a newcomer, less than a year sobriety, and he started to talk to me about a big book, Step Study Workshop, that he got involved in, where they took each other by the hand and worked the steps together as a group out of the big book. And he demonstrated his knowledge by pointing out to me that even though I thought I'd worked the first three steps, I really hadn't. He said that the third step is about making a decision to do something, which is to work the rest of the steps. And he said, since you never did that, you never worked the rest of the steps, you really never took the third step. And he said, since you never worked those action steps, you never gave your higher power an opportunity to restore you to sanity, which means you probably never took the second step. And since you are continuing to make decisions on your own, about what you will and will not do in recovery, you are still attempting to manage the unmanageable. And it's no wonder your life keeps spinning out of control, which means you never took the first step. And when he said those things to me, I I was faced with the complete failure of my way of doing things. I had to... I had to, to, to admit to my, my, my innermost self, I had to concede that I was powerless. And I asked him for help, and he introduced me to the Step Study Workshop, and it absolutely changed the course of my life to the point where participating in them, leading them, mentoring them, starting them, talking about them, getting them posted online, and our groups are now online, the Thursday and Sunday group, All of this stuff became the focal point of my life. And I now understand why God allowed me to go through the things that he did. My sponsor explained the change by saying that when God is ready to put you to work, he removes the obsession, pats you on the shoulder and says, here, I got something for you to do. And I believe that's what happened to me on May 2nd, 2006, when I walked into that room, that first big book study. You see, this group taught me that step one, admitted I was powerless, that my life had become unmanageable, is nothing more or less than recognition of the problem, that I am powerless, that a sick mind cannot heal a sick mind, that I have a physical allergy that every time I put these chemicals into me will trigger a response of craving, and I also have a mental obsession that tells me I don't have a physical allergy. So I have a two-part disease that basically has a a body that says no and a mind that says yes. So consequently, I am powerless. And then the second step came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I'm given the solution. 
that there is a power that can do for me that which I couldn't do for myself. And the book teaches me that I will access that power through two methods. One, through fellowship, which helps, supports, and directs me. And through the vital spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, which changes me. And if I am to recover from this hopeless state of mind, body, and spirit, I must have both fellowship and steps in my life. On page 17 of the big book, it says that the fellowship and steps are the cement that keep our recovery together. And that being the case, I then in my third step made a decision to pursue that power by immediately implementing a fourth step searching and fearless moral inventory of myself in which I looked at the things in me that have been blocking me from that power. The things in me that have been ruling, controlling, and dominating my life adversely. That if I am to allow this power, this God, into my life to direct me, I first much, much, must get rid of the things that have been blocking, the things that have been controlling me up until that time. And I found that those were my angers, my fears, and the guilt, shame, and remorse I've been carrying as a result of the harms done others. So I sat down and I listed, as per the directions in this book, I listed all of those things out. And the book does not tell me to write my life story. The book does not say write a biography. The step has the word inventory in it, and inventory is defined as an itemized list. So I made itemized lists, and when I was ready, I took all of those lists to my sponsor, and in my fifth step, I admitted to God, to myself, and this other human being the exact nature of my wrongs. And I discovered what a frightened, irresponsible, inconsiderate, dishonest, selfish, self-seeking, judgmental individual I had become. And after the, first, after the fifth step, I'm directed in the book to pause for an hour. I'm given an hour in the book, but I'm also given an assignment. It says to pause for an hour and reflect on what you've done to date. And what I realized was uh, when I made decisions based on these faulty thinking processes, when I made a decision based on being frightened, irresponsible, inconsiderate, dishonest, selfish, self-seeking, and judgmental, when I made a decision based on those things, I inevitably was in conflict with everybody and everything. And when those forces with which I was in conflict, I collided with, they pushed back. They retaliated. That's the word Bill uses in the book. They retaliate. And when they retaliated, I got resentful. I got fearful, I got angry, and I acted in a harmful manner, and I wound up using almost all the time. So, if the action of drinking and drugging is the end result of this chain of events that begins with the defective thought, then those thoughts have to be cast out. They're no longer desirable. They are objectionable. I must get rid of those things. And in my sixth step, I looked at those defects of character and I said, I don't want to be that way anymore. I am entirely ready to change. And in my seventh step, I'm given a formula for change. Now, the seventh step is a little confusing to people because it sounds like all it is is a prayer. Humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Sounds like, here, here, God, take this. 
you handle it. In the 12 and 12, Bill says that God will not render us as white as snow without our cooperation. And in the seventh step, my cooperation is I have to do something. Having already, having already identified the defect, I must now identify the opposite of each of those defects. Those would be my assets. And then I must ask God to help me become those assets. I'll give you an example. If I am about to be dishonest, I have to ask God to help me be honest. And with his help and all of the willpower at my command, that's my participation, is putting my willpower to use for the right reason. I act honestly. After a period of time of doing that, eventually, and it takes time, I begin to outgrow those defects of character and a whole new set of principles begin to take their place. That's my seventh step. And that is really what I use on a daily basis to deal with things. Now, I have begun in my seventh step to accept responsibility for my actions and behaviors. And if I've done that, I was now ready to turn back and accept responsibility for my past actions and behaviors in my eighth step, in which I made a list of people I had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And in that step, that's a preparation step. You know, Every once in a while, I'll go to a step meeting and they're talking about the eighth step, and all they do is talk about making amends. That's not what the eighth step is about. The eighth step is a prep step. It's how I get ready to make my amends. And I get ready spiritually by asking God for help and direction. And I get ready logistically by sitting with my sponsor and figuring out the who, what, when, where, how, and why of making my amends. And when my sponsor agreed it was time, I then went forth and made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I began to make peace with you folks. Now, in the book, it also, also tells me that after step nine, I was supposed to pause again and look back over what's happened in my life. And this is what I realized. There are three basic dimensions of life, right? Spiritual, mental, and physical. Those are the three basic dimensions of existence. And in the first three steps, I got right spiritually. I made peace with God. So I got right in the spiritual dimension as a result of the first three steps. As a result of steps four, five, six, and seven, I made peace with myself. So I got right in the mental dimension. And in steps eight and nine, I got right with my fellow man. So I made peace in the physical dimension. And I believe that whenever Bill uses the word physical in this book, he's referring to the world and everyone in it. So as a result of having worked those first nine steps, what I realized was perhaps for the first time in my life, I am healthy spiritually, mentally, and physically. And I am ready to function in what Bill in this book calls the fourth dimension of existence, which is the harmonious blend of the other three, that I'm not in conflict with anybody or anything anymore. I walk in harmony spiritually, mentally, and physically more often than not. It's not perfect, but it's something I try to do on a daily basis. Now, I've done a lot of work to get to this point, and I'm not ready to go backwards. So fortunately for me, Bill has written a prescription for continued spiritual growth 
called the 10th, 11th, and 12th step. And since we're running a little late, let me briefly tell you that the 10th step for me, continued to take personal inventory and when I was wrong, promptly admitted it, is my daytime walking around step. It's the step I use in the course of the day to deal with the events of the day. When the world comes at me, I have a tool. And that 10th step is nothing more than the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth step all rolled into one. And I challenge anybody to work the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth step on a daily basis and not grow spiritually. I don't think you could do it. And in my 11th step, I sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for me and the strength to carry that out. And in that step, I worked on my vital sixth sense. See, everything I know I learned through my five senses, what I could see, hear, taste, touch, or smell. But I have to develop a method of communication with my higher power, and these five senses don't work in that. And what does work is prayer, which is asking for help, and meditation, which for me is looking and listening for the answer all through the day. I could be in a store, hear someone talking, and know I just got the answer. I could turn on the radio and hear it. I could look at a billboard. I could come to a meeting and hear one of you say something that I recognize God has just given me the answer to something I asked him for earlier today or earlier yesterday. If the receiver is on, I will catch that message when it is given to me. And that is my form of meditation. And if I use that on a daily basis, I am working on this vital sixth sense because I am constantly communicating. It's a constant conversation that goes on between me and my higher power. And the 12th step is really a three-part step made up of the promise, the charge, and the challenge. First part of the step, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, is probably the greatest promise that we make. But what does it mean? Well, if I work the first 11 steps, I will undergo this spiritual awakening. Still don't know what that means. So if I read the appendix at the back of the book, spiritual awakening is defined as a personality change sufficient to recover from this hopeless state of mind, body, and spirit. I came in restless, irritable, discontented, filled with guilt, shame, and remorse, running on that handful of defects. And I worked the first 11 steps, and I am not like that anymore. More often than not, I tend to be tolerant, compassionate, patient, hum humble, forgiving, with love and goodwill towards my fellow man. And if that isn't a radical change in personality for somebody who didn't give two craps about anybody and anything, I don't know what is. And it happened as the result of working the first 11 steps. Now, nothing in this life is free. So I'm handed a bill in which I am charged with the responsibility to tell you. The second part of the 12th step is the charge. I am charged with the responsibility to tell you of my experience with the first 11 steps and to help you have that same experience. To tell you that if you're in and out and in and out and you can't seem to grasp what goes on here, to tell you I was there too to tell you that if you're coming to meetings on a regular basis, but you're still feeling restless and irritable and discontented, and you feel like you're just not getting it, to tell you, I've been there too.
but to tell you that I worked the first 11 steps and I'm not like that anymore. And if you don't want to be like that anymore, you worked the first 11 steps and you will not be like that anymore. That's the message I am required to carry in the second part of the 12th step. And the third part is the greatest challenge of all, to practice these principles and that's what this is. These principles are the steps. To practice those steps in all my affairs. Can I put those things to work at, at my job? Can I put them to work in my home? In the car? Can I put it to work when I'm in the express lane at the, at the grocery store and I have three items and the lady in front of me has 40 items? How's my program working now? <laughs> practice these principles in all my affairs. Now let me just wrap up with a couple of things with a statement and a, and, a, and a story. I think that we, everyone here, we are all very special people. We have been blessed with a condition, a disease, malady, whatever word you want to put on it. But we have been blessed with a condition, the treatment for which stands to make us better people than we ever thought possible. We have an opportunity, and it is just that, an opportunity to live two lifetimes in one. Think about it. That which we had or have, and that which we never thought possible, all through the God-given program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is, as Bill says in this book, an, an experience not to be missed. And the story is this. Young girl with her family spent her vacation going to the great cathedrals of Europe. And she was very moved and touched as she stood under this giant stained glass windows, bathed in light and warmth as the sun was shining through it. So she asked the tour guide, who are those people in the stained glass window? And the tour guide said, they are the saints. So when that girl went back to school and her teacher asked her what she did on her vacation, she said, I saw the saints. And when the teacher said, who are the saints? That little girl in her magnificent innocence said, the saints, they're the ones who let the light in. Now, I believe that God works through people. So he sent people in my life, saints, like Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob and Roland Hazard and Ebby Thatcher and Dr. Jung and Dr. Silkworth and Joe and Charlie and... Chris S. and my current speakers. and He put those saints in my life and they have let the light in for me. Every one of them has. And so if I have in, in any way said anything tonight that passes along just the slightest infinitesimal glimmer of some of that light, then I know I've done what God wants me to do. So thank you for having me. Um, until we meet again, may you all find that light. Thank you. Yeah.